right, all right, here we go. This is the NBA Dream Podcast for RJ Bell's Dream Preview. Today is Friday, May the 19th. I'm your host, Sleepy J, joined once again by the one and the only Mackenzie Rivers, NBA betting expert, Mackenzie and myself. We're going to go ahead, we're going to cover some hot topics in the NBA for the Eastern and Western Conference Finals. We also have an agreed-upon player prop. Maybe we might actually have two. Obviously, we're going to go ahead, we're going to break down the next games for you guys. Mac and I, pleased to announce that I've broken out of my rut. Let me just say it like it is there, guys. The first round absolutely kicked my butt. Lost units left and right, but most recently, now that the conference finals are here, kind of got out of my my little bit of a funk there. I'm on a nice little 6-0 run, but you know, more importantly, I felt like now was the time to do a podcast because at least my mindset is in the right place. So even though you guys might be a little bit mad that Mac and I went ahead and we took some time off from the NBA podcast, you probably might want to actually thank us because uh, at least on my end, you probably would have gotten some pretty bad picks and I could sit here and I could actually admit that. But right now I feel good. I feel focused. I'm dialed in. You know, Mac, it's been a minute since we went ahead and we talked on a podcast and, and my apologies to you for that. You know how much fun this is for us to go ahead and do this stuff. But overall right now, you know, what's your assessment of where the NBA playoffs are at and where these teams are going right now? I think it's a wide open league, which is very entertaining and also very difficult uh, to analyze. But one thing that's been consistent, regardless of the team, regardless of the matchup, is the Vegas market has said enough, no mas, with being uh, short on these favorites in the ideal spots. Case in point, Lakers game three for the first time in recorded Vegas betting history, a five and a half point dog in game two is going to be a five and a half point favorite in game three, leaking up to six in some spots. Uh, That tells you a lot. That tells you that not only are these teams even, but the home court and the team that is perceived to be the team that has to win that game. We saw it in Phoenix winning two at home to, to make that a series out of nothing, even though Nuggets, I think all accounts are now far better team than the Suns, especially without Chris Paul. We saw them make it a series because of the spot they were in, the desperation. Now, what accounts for that is up to interpretation. I have my own theories, but the Vegas market has taken note. Favorite in this year's playoffs improved to 56%. That is exactly in line with the five years prior in the playoffs. Uh, I don't expect it to continue for the next 10 years because the Vegas market is responding. And uh, maybe eventually they'll go too far the other way. I mean, I don't think the Nuggets are worse than the Lakers. I don't think they should be six-point dogs. But it's difficult to stand in the way of these spot opportunities. Um, so that's what makes it fun. It makes it fun because the Vegas market is always shifting like sands in the desert. Uh, and we in the desert uh, are trying to make the most out of it. Um, appreciate being back on the pod. Uh, it's been an up and down playoffs for me too. But uh, the conference finals and the finals last year, I think we did like eight pods. Uh, we had a great record in and um, it was by far my most profitable time of the season. Hoping to approach anything close to that this year. And uh, let's get it going. You know, I think with that said there, Mac, one of the things that that I struggled with, and, and I've struggled with this, you know, I don't want to say throughout my entire career, but I believe a lot of professional betters do this at times. You know, we get all excited, you know, for the NFL playoffs, NBA playoffs, and we start jumping right into everything. It's like, you know, we want to get out there and give out wagers and this, that, and the other. And I think you kind of mentioned one word there, Mac, and it was spot. And although teams are kind of making their marks in certain spots, I feel like betters do too. And when the conference finals come around, I, I feel like we're kind of picking better spots for our picks because it kind of gets, you know, it's more condensed. It just, it makes it easier to go ahead and see the board. So I feel like picking our spots now is a little bit easier and, and you know, kind of showed that on the podcast last year. So we'll talk a little bit about the Lakers and the Denver game. That game's going to take place tomorrow on Saturday. And we'll talk a little bit about that line move. But let's start with the Eastern Conference playoffs here, Mac. We have the Heat. It's going to be in game two here. They're going to be on the road again in Boston. We have a current line on this one. Boston favored nine and a half points and a total of 215, 215 and a half. Mac, let's go ahead and let's start out with, I guess, maybe the story in game one. Yes, Boston lost, but Jimmy Butler went out there and had an amazing game. I mean, this guy in the playoffs has been known as Playoff Jimmy. And if you watch the beginning, you know, going back to like the Buck series, you know, Jimmy didn't actually show up. It took him a couple games to kind of get the motor running. But Butler has been amazing. And, you know, if I don't know where a lot of people have him. Maybe you have him in the top 10. And it kind of seems like, Mac, like when, when players go out there and they have these amazing performances, 
all of a sudden they really start flying up the, uh, let's just say, like the league's best player rankings. Right now, where would you go ahead and put Jimmy Butler? And and let, let me ask you this, too. Like, where did you have him, like, in the middle of the season? Because some people are saying, oh, he's a top 10 player in the league. I don't think a lot of us had him as a top 10 player in the league. But after you see this, it's kind of hard to, to at least not have him in that conversation as top 10 best players in the league right now. Yeah, try to go on first take or one of these shows and say Jimmy Butler isn't a top 10 player. Uh, with the reaction culture that we have, with him putting up 32 points on 52% shooting, hard-pressed to say anybody in the media that he's not a top-10 player, not a top-five player right now, but let's take a step back because he was consensus, using a lot of different metrics, Bill Simmons, CBS, ESPN rank, the number 11th player entering this season. And it makes sense. If you look at his breadth of his career, and I always felt like I was more pro-Jimmy than everybody else. I remember being like, actually viscerally angry when Bill Simmons had Ben Simmons uh, like the 12th best player in the league and did not mention Jimmy Butler when he did a top 20 player column uh, back when they were on the same team. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, what are these guys missing? He does everything. He's a Swiss army knife. He's incredibly smart, incredibly tenacious. Uh, He's everything you want in a star player. But before last season, his career high in points per game in the playoffs was in 2015 when the Bulls lost in the second round. He scored 22.9 points per game. Then last year happened. He had that incredible game one where he couldn't miss in Miami in the Eastern Conference Finals to go up 1-0 again over the Celtics. And he ended that playoff run shooting 51%, 27 points per game, five points higher than he ever had before. And then this season comes along. And he had a fine regular season, probably his best regular season, actually. Very, very, uh, all the analytics really loved what he was doing, but they were an eighth seed. So he was my 11th best player. uh, really hadn't ticked up that much or down. Um, you know, maybe it should have, you know, the last couple of years. And then these playoffs happen. And I mentioned before, he had never scored more than 22 points per game. Last year, he scores 27 points per game in the playoffs. This year, if you round it up, it goes to 32 points per game. So pretty much every each of the last two seasons, he's broken his career high by five points. Uh, you got to step back and take note. But where do we take it from here? I mean, is he, I mean, he's been the best player in these playoffs probably, along with Jokic, you know, probably better than Devin Booker at this point, all things considered. But I'm not willing to just take him over an Embiid or take him over a Giannis. I just don't think he's at that level. I don't think he has that um, upside. But maybe I'm missing something because I keep thinking the Heat's offense is going to turn back into a pumpkin, and they put up 123 against the Celtics in game one. He was amazing, not just scoring 35 points per game, but every possession they went to him and they said, figure out an edge, figure out how to beat your man or how to get two on you or just how to get the the Celtics defense vulnerable. And he had seven assists. Some of them were just like they, everything the Celtics defense was right. They doubled at the right time. They waited till the end of the shot clock and it didn't matter. He found the guy in the corner with 0.1 seconds left. Perfect offense. So his intelligence has always been on display for me. And now he's hitting like every single shot he takes shooting 52% from the field in these playoffs, 38% from three. Uh, You know, that just wasn't his game throughout most of his career. But like Jordan, you know, he's adding an incredible shooting touch later in his career. Uh, So, yeah, I've talked myself up in circles. I'm willing to say he's better than, um, I don't know, he he doesn't crack like the best of the best players when it comes from Jokic, Giannis, Curry. I think he's like Anthony Davis level. And it's, you know, it's funny because Anthony Davis has been a GOAT not the good kind, most of these playoffs, and Jimmy Butler's been a lauded hero. But I think if you take a step back, if you re- if you don't react uh, in a first take, uh, wow, he did it, he's the man type of way, on paper, um, I don't think he's there with the best of the best, but he continues to prove me wrong. So maybe I'm going to have to amend that uh, consideration, considering what he's doing. Well, I think we have to take the regular season in the playoffs you know, into consideration. You know, One thing about Butler... He doesn't play a whole hell of a lot of regular season games, at least it seems to me, you know, that he takes his fair share amount of days of rest. But when the playoffs come, oftentimes he looks like the freshest player on the floor. Maybe it was last playoffs there, Mac, where they went into some, maybe it was like a double OT game. And I just remember everybody out there dragging. And I remember Jimmy Butler out there dragging too. But it just seemed like he always had like that extra step, that extra shot um, that would go in or that extra effort. 
And I was like, dude, this guy, when it comes playoff time, like there's just some some type of a weird switch gets flipped. And I think he's flipping that right now. And this is clearly the time where, you know, there's a lot of pressure. And maybe that, you know, that that's one of the things that, that helps propel him is that he loves pressure and he likes these big moments. And, you know, he's kind of put on a pedestal that that the playoffs are time when, when Jimmy Butler shines. So maybe it's just a culmination of a lot of things that actually make him go out there and play so much better. But, Mac, let me ask you this. You know, there's guys out there like Barkley, Carl Malone, Allen Iverson that haven't won a title. I don't know if you think Jimmy Butler wins a title. I think with the the way that the NBA is today, Mac, that these players can stick around a little bit longer and eventually find themselves on a team. Players don't get thrown under the bus right now for joining, let's just say, like a super roster to go and try to win a title. So I wouldn't be shocked if Butler does that. But let's just take like a list of the guys who haven't won a title yet. Would you go ahead and would you place a Jimmy Butler in there with the Iversons, Barclays, and Carl Malones of the world? Jimmy Butler, the last two seasons, has had better playoff runs than Carl Malone ever had in his career. I know he made the finals. I watched a lot of those games on YouTube. I don't think he was the uh, end-all, be-all of those jazz teams. It was very well-coached, very well-orchestrated jazz teams. I thought he was decent. Jimmy Butler's been great for two years. Now, Carl Malone had a much longer, more prolific career, but I'm a playoff guy. I'm a lift your team to the highest possible echelons, echelons type guy. Uh, so I would have Jimmy Butler over Carl Malone, who I've never been a big fan of from his game. James Harden hasn't won a championship. Damian Lillard hasn't won a championship. Let me ask you right now. We're talking about where does Jimmy Butler rank in the best players? I have my list here. Uh, Nikola Jokic, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Luka, Joel Embiid, Kawhi Leonard, Damian Lillard, Anthony Davis, Jason Tatum. Then it goes to Jimmy Butler. And then it goes to Devin Booker, who I probably should have bumped up during these playoffs. But of those names, who doesn't fit? Who do you think is Jimmy Butler better than any of those guys I just named? I'll say no. I would probably have him somewhere around uh, like 12 would be would be high. And I feel like 18 would kind of be maybe maybe correct somewhere in that area, somewhere like 15, 18, somewhere in that area. I think you get a lot of pushback on national radio shows because they say, hey, this guy's one of the final four. He's the best player. He's on a, the least talented team. But I think you take a step back. I wouldn't take Jimmy Butler over any of those guys. Maybe Damian Lillard at this point in his career being an older point guard, but it's close. Uh, as far as his historic place, uh, I saw a Fox Sports radio analyst, a so-called analyst, say of the 2011 draft, Jimmy Butler's had the best career, followed by Kawhi Leonard and Klay Thompson. I think that's pretty ridiculous and reactionary and prisoner of the moment. Kawhi Leonard's a two-time champion, two-times final MVP, by far the best player on those championship teams. Klay Thompson, a four-times champ champion. Again, Jimmy Butler never – I know we call him playoff Jimmy. He never scored more than 22 in any playoff run before the last two years. How much weight do we put on the last two years? I think some, but I think I wouldn't expect him to score 28 a game, 30 a game going forward for the rest of his playoff career at 33 years old. So I might have him um, right there with Davis, right there with Lillard, 9-10, but I don't think he's much higher than that. Historically, here are the greatest players never to win a championship. I think it was Charles Barkley. Then I think it goes James Harden. I know he sucked in the playoffs, but just his whole repertoire, his whole career. And then it probably goes Jimmy Butler. Uh, I might be forgetting a few guys, but I put him above Carl Malone, so he gets that. Well, I don't think – I mean, if you gave me the option to take Iverson or Butler, I, I would take Allen Iverson. That's that's just me. And obviously, oh, I forgot about Allen Iverson, my guy. Yeah, so, that's, for sure. that's one of my favorite players. I do think maybe you have a little built-in bias for Jimmy Butler, and, and I'm a Butler guy. Like, I've always thought he was one of the best players in the league when he was in his prime. But you're a Bulls fan at heart, right? I mean, so I think that there might be a little bit sure. of bias in, in, involved in there. Hey, you're, you're the guy that has him 12 to 18. I'm trying to make the Casey's top 10. Well, we'll see how he performs tonight, Mac, because game two is going to be massive. If he can go out there and kind of have a duplicate performance of what he had in game one, and even if they come up short, then the conversation gets a little bit more widened. So we'll, we'll see. Let's talk about the game tonight there, Mac, because I think there was a glaring – issue for the Boston Celtics in game one. Now, Boston went ahead. Uh, they were, what, Mac, like nine, nine, nine and a half point favorites in that game, and they end up losing the game outright. And for me, I think the glaring thing, Mac, is there is a coaching mismatch in this series. I get You could throw all the players on the floor, and Miami, they're, they're short of Tyler Hero, and it's not exactly the, the, the star-studded cast that, that the Celtics have. 
But I think coaching is starting to become an issue. And I talked about this with you going into the playoffs, going into round one. You know, we talked about the Atlanta Hawks in that series for Boston. And I said, you know, what what is this coach going to do now that the playoffs are here? Like, it's easy breezy cruising through the regular season, you know, with a roster like that. I mean, in my opinion, Boston has the best roster right now in the NBA. They're suited to win the title. And I actually think that Boston will win the title now that the Suns are out of it. But there is a coaching mismatch here, and it, and it does concern me a little bit. I don't know if you saw it, but what I saw in game one was a Miami team that was down double digits. Not only did they fight back and get even, but then they took a double-digit lead. Now, I saw Spolster calling some timeouts throughout that game, and you know I don't know what necessarily what's being discussed, but it seemed like the Miami Heat always responded. And the Boston coach went out there, and he called a couple timeouts, and I don't know if you were watching the live broadcast, but he, t- he was t- telling the team, like, this team, we knew they were going to come out here and, and throw some punches, and we did nothing to go ahead and kind of stop them. And he kind of got pissed. I actually think he walked away from the huddle at one point. And I don't know necessarily if, if that was the right approach or not. But in my opinion, I think there's a coaching mismatch here, and I think it shows up throughout this entire series. And in a series in which I didn't think it was going to be all that close, I thought maybe Boston 4-1, it looks like it might be a lot closer. And I'm going to put a lot of that on – the fact that I think there's a coaching mismatch between Spolster and Missoula. I think if there wasn't a coaching mismatch, the Celtics in five games or better would be a pretty good bet. Fortunately, there is, because I did make that bet, kind of goaded into it on the dream preview at one o'clock in the morning. (laughs) But regardless, I'll pay that $300 with with a smile on my face, because there is definitely a coaching mismatch. And 46 points the Heat scored in the third quarter compared to the Celtics 25. They go from a nine-point from nine points down to up 12 at the end of that half. Um, and Joel Mazzula got all the heat, all the uh, disparagement you a, play, a coach can get because everyone said, call a timeout, do something else, change the matchup. You can't lose a quarter by 21 points. I understand that, and I appreciate that. I will add the caveat that arguably, or at least many people consider the greatest NBA coach of all time, Phil Jackson had one patented move that he would do and that would be to let his players play. Let his players get embarrassed through a 20-0 run. Let his players feel what it's like to pick themselves up without a timeout, without dad coming over and patting you on the back uh, in the in the thick of things. That didn't work out in, in, in Game 3. Letting them play, I mean, the results are what they are. And you mentioned him kind of getting frustrated with his team not doing what they say they're going to do. Uh, I remember in the second quarter they had a TV timeout, and he said uh, – we have to gang rebound. We have to not turn the ball over. Those two things are non-negotiable. Someone saying these things are non-negotiable nine-tenths through the NBA season tells me that he's been negotiating and arguing and pleading with these players to do these things with varying levels of success, with varying levels of commitment. And he's one of the youngest coaches in the league. I think he's 33 or so. Um, he's definitely one of the least experienced. This is being his first time uh, in the big chair. So does that factor into the Celtics not sticking on script, staying to the game plan, doing the little things? I think it's hard to argue that it doesn't. And I will say this too. Yes, there's a coaching mismatch in this, in this the, the degree of which might be substantial, might end up with the Celtics losing this series. They're currently minus 210 to win it. But uh, the talent mismatch and the coaching mismatch are at opposite ends. But I'll also say this. No team in the NBA could be facing the Miami Heat where I didn't think there'd be a coaching mismatch. I think Eric Spolcher has solidified himself as the best coach in the league. Nobody runs the type of zones he does. Nobody gets the most out of undrafted players on offense that he does. Um, So, yeah, he deserves credit for that. I mean, 13 years as a head coach, seven Eastern Conference finals, five finals trips. It's it's unheard of. Um, He gets the most out of his players by far, of any of any coach in the league. All right, well, let me agree with you with that, Mac. I didn't have Spolstra as the best coach in the league for the last eight years. But after seeing what this guy's con- – like, at some point, it's on paper. It's in front of you. It's in black and white. We have the videos and all that stuff to show you. Like, not only does this guy win, but he wins big games. He wins games that he probably shouldn't be winning, or at least that he's not favored to win. And he just constantly just keeps showing up. So I boosted him up to best coach in the league. And now that, you know, the line's like nine, nine and a half, 
Um, I, I do have to question like, well, where are my advantages if you want to go ahead and take the heat? You know, what, what are my disadvantages? And I do think one of the big advantages here for Miami in this series is the coaching mismatch. Mac, you talked a little bit about the turnovers. The Boston coach was not happy about that. You know, he wasn't obviously happy about, you know, the rebounding stuff. But the box score actually looks like it was a pretty even Steven game outside of three-point shooting. Miami shot the three ball rather well. They were 51%, uh, 16 for 31. Do you think they can duplicate that? Because Boston actually didn't shoot the three ball all that well, and that was kind of surprising to me at home. I expected Boston to kind of rain threes from the outside in game one. Not to be the case. Do you think we might see a little bit of a flip-flop here in game two? I do, and we saw the Celtics break out and hit some threes in the second quarter, the only quarter they won in game one. Uh, and Miami, it seemed like throughout the whole game, was just playing carefree. Kyle Lowry, you know, two times between the legs, fade away three, knock it down. Like, that's the kind of stuff that can go down and it can make you feel good and make and make you uh, excited about getting an upset victory when you really have nothing to lose in game one. We saw Jimmy Butler with the clinching three in the last minute pulling up from 30 feet. So I think there was some of, some of that nothing to lose uh let's just keep spraying it where the Celtics maybe got a little tight in the second half but if you look at something like shot quality and they say we don't know the nerves of players we don't know the vibe in the building we just know the shots and the distance the defenders are when they shot them it said the Celtics should have won by eight which was almost exactly where the game closed eight and a half nine um so I think that that shooting variance is much more likely to regress to the mean Boston's been a better shooting team throughout the season the Heat aren't going to hit 52 percent but if they hit 45%, 45%, they can still steal this game too. All right, well, the line doesn't suggest they have to steal anything being that it's at nine and a half. Do you feel that that line's correct after seeing what you saw in game one? When game one opened and it was minus eight, I'm like the Sixers were minus seven and a half, or plus seven and a half versus the same Celtics teams. I had the Sixers four points better, four and a half points better than the Heat entering the playoffs. So I think I thought that line was wrong, and I told uh, on SOV AM I said this line, in my opinion, should be nine. I think the Celtics point differential wise should be nine. That said, the Celtics are only now ten and eight in their last eighteen playoff games. They seem to have no home court advantage. Uh, Boston does not seem like the city that is very friendly to their team, their basketball team, for whatever reason. When things start going not so well seems like this team does better on the road at least it has it has the last two years in the playoffs so maybe that's where I got it wrong the Celtics maybe are six points better but maybe their home court is not three or three and a half like it is for most of these playoff teams Uh, so I think the line is a little bit excessive I know the bounce back the Celtics have played extremely well the last two years 59 percent ATS the last two years awful loss especially on defense but I wouldn't I wouldn't go north of nine I think this heat have to be upgraded uh, where they they're closer to the Sixers, where I thought the Sixers were entering the playoffs than they are um, to an average team. So they they have to be upgraded, and I think that's counteracted by the Celtics being in the better spot. So I'd make this eight and a half nine. I do think it's getting a little uh, get a little wild. Maybe the public money coming in at nine and a half, even ten coming up in some spots. I think what kind of alerted me to maybe the line being wrong is the fact that Boston hasn't beat Miami in the last three times that they've played them. And in game one where you're like a nine-point favorite, you know, you go out there and you lose outright. It just tells me that that Miami could – I don't want to say a bad matchup, but a matchup in which the Boston offense doesn't erupt because it didn't erupt in game one. And I'm worried that it probably doesn't erupt here in game two. Now, you have a bet that you like, and it's probably music to your ears that, that I'm kind of thinking that Boston's offense isn't going to erupt. So you have a best bet. I'm going to give a best bet out here too, Mac, and it's going to involve one of those Boston Celtics players, actually. So what do you got for game one? What are you looking at most that you think is going to go ahead and make our listeners a little bit of money? So I just mentioned Celtics off a loss, extremely productive the last two seasons, especially on defense. However, I think it's expensive. So I want to isolate where I think that intensity will show up, that taking care of the ball will show up. So I'm going to go Boston-Miami first half under. 110 and a half. So like I mentioned, Celtics very good off a loss, holding teams two and a half points below their Vegas expectations. If you just look at the playoffs, 11 and three ATS, holding teams five points below Vegas expectations off a loss. Remember game six, they popped Robert Williams in, held the Sixers to only 84 points in that game. If you look at the 14 games they've been off a loss the last two years, only allowing 49 points to their opponents in the first half. And it does it on both ends. Not only do they pick up 
their defensive intensity. Stan Van Gundy said a very interesting thing on the broadcast. He said, every single Celtic that steps on the court has an argument to be an all-defensive player. That is very rare in the modern NBA to have that kind of versatility, that kind of depth on the defensive side of the ball. And I think that shows up. On the other side, however, I agree with you. I think the Celtics' offense is not prone to put up 130 on this Heat defense. I think the Heat's defense is very methodical, uh, very tactical. Spolster, the best coach in the NBA, running a 1-3-1 zone with Bam Adebato sipping uh, all the way down to the paint. Worked really well in the first half last week, uh, last game. Whether that is the method they approach or there's another wrinkle that they haven't brought to the table yet. I like Eric Spolster's defense to keep Boston's offense in check, especially early. And I think the Celtics' offense is going to be very careful early. Those turnovers is really what flipped the game in game one. I think they're going to be very, very careful with the ball, very slow to what they're doing, just trying to get singles and doubles because um, they can't they can't really afford to drop this game. So I'm expecting it to be tight, and I like Miami, Boston, Celtics under 110.5 in the first half for a best bet. All right, so there's a good best bet there for Mac. Let me see if I can go ahead and give you guys a good one. Mac, I'm going to go total square ball on this one. I'm going to play Jason Tatum over 29.5 points tonight. And I think that I got to go back to the box score of the last game. Tatum only took 17 shot attempts. Now, he had a good amount of free throws, but it was the least amount of shot attempts that he took in the entire playoffs. Outside of that game in which they blasted Philly, where they ended up winning the game by 40, he only took seven attempts in that game. Obviously, it, it wasn't his greatest game, but I feel like his, at least the attempts, is going to be something that gets highlighted. Like, we need our best player to go out there and shoot the ball. Uh, it was a lot of Brogdon. It was, uh, um, you know, Marcus Smart and, and, and Derek White and, and this guy and that guy. It's like a lot of people were just shooting up the rock a lot. And I think that that's one of the reasons why the Celtics kind of got behind and that's been one of the things that's kind of plagued Tatum at times is he seems to get like these little bit of a cold streak every now and again. And I think he just comes out firing here early to try to go ahead and get more attention put on him so the rest of the Celtics can kind of do their job and get to their spots, you know, and get some higher percentage shots because his Miami defense, you know, it's making things difficult here on Boston. But I think if Tatum can go out there and probably hoist up anywhere between like 24, 26 shots somewhere in that area, uh, I think he can go ahead and get over this point total of 29 and a half. So I'm looking for him to come, come back and have a big a big bounce back game. I think he's going to have maybe his most attempts uh, here in a while. So And that was kind of surprising. Only 17 attempts out of the, you know, and that was the, the least amount in the entire playoff run here. So something's got to be done here. And I think that, you know, they're going to look to their best player. And Jason Tatum is one of the best players in the league. I think he goes out and has a monster game tonight. So. Uh, even though it's a square pick there, Mac, I'm going to go ahead and give that one out. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. And I say I don't hate it because I've been on a pretty public crusade against players going under their player props, especially the best players. I think you just look at the top scores, it's like 60%. I'll have to update my numbers. Um, the last two playoffs, betting under their numbers. However, there are exceptions to the rule. And Tatum's size and strength is a very underrated aspect of his game. The way the Heat are playing now, they really have Bam Adebayo, sometimes Kevin Love, and a bunch of 6'2", 6'3", players, Jimmy Butler being 6'6". They don't really have a lot of size, and we saw that in Game 1. Jason Tatum got to the rack at will. Uh, Anthony Edwards, who's a pretty, pretty big, athletic, strong guy, said, when I stand next to Jason Tatum, his forearms, his biceps, I mean, look like my biceps when I'm flexing, and they just look like that all the time. And he's so tall and lanky, you don't really see – necessarily right away how big and strong he is but hear it from Anthony Edwards he's um you know that dominant when it comes to the guard position being that strong last three games averaging 37 points per game so that's good when you're betting over 29 and a half and if you look at shot quality because sometimes players get lucky he's actually been expected to score 34 points per game so still significantly higher than where this prop is set at um another thing is they didn't adjust this number it was 29 and a half last game he scored 30 now this total is four points higher than where game one opened. He probably gets a some share of that, maybe a half point of that should be allocated his way. I expect him to play as many minutes as necessary to get this victory. So as much as I hate betting the best players to go over their points prop, this is one I don't mind at all. One of the reasons why I do this there, Mac, I think you have to have the right situation. And it's the situation where one of the best players in the league has his back up against the wall 
and typically they play team basketball. I, I look at like a guy like Steph Curry. Loves playing team basketball, has no problem sharing the basketball. Jason Tatum kind of fits in that same, you know, that same regard. But when they have to go out there and it's like, dude, you need to go out and have 40 tonight. You need to be the guy that's taking the shots. We can't have, you know, this guy off the bench and that guy off the bench taking all these shots. I mapped him Brogdon in the last game. I think he shot 17 times now. Although he had a half-decent game, it's still you need your best player to go out there and put up the shots. And, and I think that that's something that's put on Tatum at times where – it's let's play less team basketball and have one of the best players in the world go out there and just do his thing. Same thing with a guy like Curry. We've seen that before when the Warriors were up against the wall. It was like, oh, Curry might have a big game tonight, and he goes out there and he has 40 points or you know he has a, a historic game seven type of game. Like Those games happen. And I think if you pick your spots, especially now with Boston losing game one, this is a spot that I'll pick to go ahead and play a guy over, but I'm with you 100%. You usually want to look under for these guys because, one, the public is betting all these games. They're looking to bet all these these guys over. But more importantly, it's a team game. So they have to get everybody involved. Otherwise, you get a guy like, uh, let's just say, Spolster in a defense like Miami where it's like, all right, if this guy wants to just go ahead and take all the shots, we're just going to double him and, and figure out a game plan so he doesn't kill us. So anyway, I'll go ahead. I'll do that. I'll play Jason Tatum over uh, his 29.5 points prop for tonight. That'll be my best bet for that game. Mac, let's go ahead and let's jump over to the Western Conference you already mentioned it with the line in this one. So the Lakers are going to be five and a half point favorites, and we have a total in this one of 223 and a half. Lakers are down now, Mac. 0-2 Denver, where they go, they're at home, they do their job. Um, I actually thought Denver was going to lose last night, and if it wasn't for Jamal Murray catching fire, I think that game would have been a little bit closer. I mean, the Lakers were doing everything they needed to do to go ahead and win that game. But now we go back to L.A., and let's talk a little bit about the line. And here's here's two reasons why I felt that the line adjustment was correct. Now, I get it. It's like what, like a 10-point line move. I think the Denver Nuggets have the best home court advantage in the league, and I would actually move it maybe to about four points, maybe even four and a half points for a home court advantage. Some might disagree, and that's fine. I think four and a half points is, is perfectly fine, but let's just say four. But here's the other reason why I don't like Denver, and that's because their road record has never been good. It, it hasn't been good all year long. I don't know where they rank amongst the league, Mac, but I remember looking towards the end of the year, and I started to fade Denver on the road because they just weren't all that great on the road. So I think that you have to go ahead and kind of deduct a little bit just for that because they're not one of the best road teams in the league. So I'm taking Lakers down 0-2, playing at home, Denver not going to be at home and the struggles that they have on the road. And I'm kind of putting all that together. And I feel that five and a half is a perfectly fine line. I think that line is actually fair. And I, I would probably go out and say that that line is correct. So it's tough for me to really pick a side here. I almost went ahead, pulled the trigger on the Lakers money line in game two, because I thought they were going to win that one outright, but I don't want to lay five and a half points to a Denver team right now. That's playing really good basketball and they're kind of smelling blood in the water, and they're thinking, hey, maybe we can get to our first NBA Finals. So that's kind of where I'm at with the line in this one, but I feel like it's right, Mac. Yeah, I don't think you would have minded having a Lakers money line bet in game two when there was three minutes to go in the third quarter, and you're up 10. Then the fourth quarter happened, and the Nuggets proved to be the better team, at least in that particular matchup. And you you mentioned that Nuggets are playing excellent basketball. They're a plus nine through 13 games in these playoffs. By far the best in the league. The next best is Boston at plus five. Then the Lakers and Miami both plus three and a half. So they've been in another world as far as these playoffs so far. That said, hard for me not to believe that the Lakers aren't going to have their best performance in game three. Try to make this a long series. A lot of what they tried in game two worked. Again, 10 point lead with 15 minutes to go. I thought they went away from Austin Reeves way too early. He didn't have a single shot. Between 11 minutes to go in the third quarter when they were up eight and five minutes to go in the fourth quarter, the next time he shot, and he made he made both of his two shots over this time stretch, they were down 12. I think he's their best option in the half court, and I think they're going to find ways to, um, whether it's him or playing off of him and him getting more assists and, and LeBron cutting to the basket, I think there are different ways their offense can be better against this kind of average Nuggets defense. Will they be able to stop the Nuggets, though, is the question. Um both of the first two games were decided on the Vegas number by a half point. 
So I don't think any adjustment is necessary from those from that perspective. The Lakers were six and a half point dogs. They lost by six. Lakers were five and a half point dogs. They lost by five. So this has been very close to what we've expected so far, at least through the 48 minutes. I know that each team had a big lead. Um, I feel like this one goes down to the wire. And with the way the free throw shooting and how the fourth quarter can just stretch out, I don't think you're going to feel necessarily great having either side of this side in the fourth quarter when it's a four-point game uh, with two minutes left. Either side could win. Either side could cover. Um, that's the way I look at it. Or the side is is very pre- precarious to me. Uh, is that the right word? Uh Perigoso, dangerous, is, is not something that I want my money on because I feel like it's going to be a nail-biter to the end. All right, I'm with you with that. And I, I honestly cannot see the Lakers blowing out Denver, not with the firepower that Denver has right now, what they've been showing on the floor. Let's talk a little bit about LeBron, though, because I guess this is you know a conversation that's going to pop up, whether he wins this or whether he loses this series, You know, if he makes another finals. you know, Let's just talk like legacy for LeBron. Let's say he loses Mac. Let's just say LeBron loses this one, and obviously Monday morning we'll all be talking about it. You know, where where's LeBron's legacy if he ends up losing a Western Conference Finals at this stage of his career? Uh, shout out to Rob Parker, uh, a firebrand, a guy whose whose work I often don't like and often appreciate because it's very different. Got to give him that; it's different. He said LeBron would be a fool to lose in the NBA finals. He should do everything he possibly can to either win the NBA championship, obviously great five championships tied with Kobe tied with Kareem tied with a bunch of guys that deserve to be on that Mount Rushmore. But if he loses in the, in the finals, he's going to be what four and seven at that point. It's not going to look good. So maybe losing the conference finals is better. I disagree with that notion. I know. Well, people will say this. People will say this. I don't care what dumb people say. I care what the basketball tells me on my TV set that I watch, and him making another finals should be an incredible achievement. That said, he's having his worst playoffs as an NBA player. His player efficiency rating, if you, just t- if you don't count the one year uh, against the Suns where he was hurt, that, that doesn't really count, six games. I throw that out. If you throw that out, he's having his lowest player efficiency rating, lowest points per game, uh, highest turnover rate, least assist percentage. However... I think the ability to not be at your best statistically and allow others to, to thrive. We saw Jamal Murray. Jokic had a cold second half, only scored second points, only, only scored seven points. Jamal Murray blew up in the fourth quarter, and he got the rock every time Jokic was setting screens for him. I think that is innate skill to allow your teammates to excel when you don't necessarily have it, and I think he deserves a lot of credit for that, giving Austin Reeves this platform. I mean, he didn't do it so much in game two, and it ended up costing him, like I just said, but giving Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis, the reins to put up 40 in game one. I think if he can shepherd this team, even at his decreased capacity as an all NBA type player, you know, third all NBA this year, where he's been a first time all NBA his whole career. I think that should be a boon. That should be a feather in his cap, something to be applauded for, even if they don't win the finals. So I think at this point he can only help his legacy. I don't think it, it's, it's a, I don't think it's a huge demerit. If they don't do it, they're not favored. They're only a seventh seed. But I don't agree with the notion that he should lose in the Western Conference Finals to avoid the embarrassment of losing in the finals. Making the finals, winning a game in the NBA is always a good thing, in my opinion. Um, so, yeah, that's where I stand on it. I'm kind of on the opposite end, too. And I was thinking about I'm glad I didn't, oh, I'm glad I didn't ask you this before the pod. I was kind of in the, in the camp where if LeBron makes the Western Conference Finals and loses – it's a feather in his cap when we look at the stat sheet. And because it, what does it come down to? It comes down to, you know, who's the greatest player of all time? Is it LeBron or is it MJ? Like, that's the conversation everybody wants to have. And the fact that Jordan's 6-0 and and then it's, it turns into another loss in the loss column for LeBron. Like, yeah, hey, you know, you made it. But at the end of the day, it just becomes an even stronger argument when there's a loss in that particular column. So that's kind of the way that I thought about it. You can't argue LeBron's one of the best players in the league all time. And the fact that this dude constantly, you know, makes the finals, Western Conference finals, Eastern Conference finals, whatever it might be, um, you can't take anything away from him. But in black and white, it looks a lot worse if you add a loss there and Jordan's still riding, you know, with, with the perfect finals at 6-0. and So I think that sums it up really well. And it kind of explains why we're on different sides of this coin. Because I think if the conversation is LeBron or MJ – then yeah, being four and seven in the finals or losing in this conference finals might, uh, you know, it might be a demerit that, that gets him off that pedestal. Michael Jordan later in his career, when he had all of his powers, 
when he was in the playoffs, I know he didn't make the playoffs with the Wizards, but he never faltered. He never was second best ever later on in his career once he got over the hump the one time. But I'm never going to – I've never had – I've never honestly had that argument in my head comparing these two players. I compare LeBron to guys like Larry Bird, arguably the greatest forward in NBA history, guys like Magic Johnson, guys that were great but weren't Babe Ruth, weren't in this other echelon, this legendary, can't even believe it when you read it, can't even believe it when you see videos of it type level. No, I, I just, I've never seen that. So I think where he is, ninth, eighth, fifth, best player of all time, I don't think he gets a demerit. If you consider him a top three player of all time, then yeah, maybe that is something to consider. Well, I'll say this, and this is, this is like almost fact is that there's a what-if factor with Jordan. You don't have that with LeBron. Everything's in black and white. There's no what-if with LeBron. Well, what if Michael Jordan didn't retire? He always has that. I could have won eight titles. I could have won nine titles. So it's like, well, you have this in black and white for LeBron, and you have this in black and white for MJ, but there was always that what-if Michael Jordan didn't retire. What if all those crazy things that happened you know, at that time around his retirement and the years that he took off that happened in his life, you know, what, what might have happened? So he always has that in his back pocket. So not only is he 6-0, and but what if he didn't retire? Would he have won nine titles, ten titles? And I think that that just always hammers the the argument if you're an MJ guy, you know, even stronger. So we'll see. Uh, you know, we're not trying to get into a LeBron and, and MJ debate, but I think it hurts LeBron's legacy if he makes the finals now and loses. That, that's kind of where I'm at. You're on the other side. So let's talk about some guys that are kind of creating their legacy now there, Mac. And uh, let's talk about MVPs and, and, you know, Joel Embiid ends up getting bounced out of the playoffs and Nikola Jokic is still here. Do you think that if Jokic makes the finals and let's just say he wins a title, does that make Embiid's MVP trophy winning year kind of uh, not as not as good? Or do you think there might be some people that come out and say maybe Jokic should have won it? Dirk Nowitzki was the best player in 2007 by all accounts. I would have had Kobe there, but I wasn't voting in the NBA uh, MVP vote at that time. And then he lost in the first round, and he heard about it. He went to Australia. He turned off his phone. He was he he disconnected because of all the heat, all of the uh, vitriol pointed in his direction for not performing as an MVP at the highest stage, losing in round one. Joel Embiid lost in round two. And he didn't play well. He went under his points prop almost every game. He went from 33 points per game in the regular season. I know there was an injury game in there, but he only scored 24 points per game in the playoffs. The biggest drop-off for an MVP in history. It's a demerit for him as a player. However, I don't think that says that speaks anything to the regular season, how much you elevated your team, how valuable were your team in the 2022-2023 regular season. I think he was the deserved MVP. That said, these playoffs have shown me Nikola Jokic is by far the better player in the biggest moments when he has to change his game up, when he has to have versatility, be a passer, be a scorer offensively. And even if he's 10, 20% worse on defense, he more than makes up for it with the genius he brings on each and every possession. And in the fast break opportunities, he's the better player. He is a tier above Joel Embiid. That said, I don't think that means he should have necessarily won MVP. Uh, We were talking about it in March. It didn't look like he wanted to win MVP, and I think that has to be considered uh, when you're voting for these regular season awards. By the way, this stat came across my desk today. Player efficiency rating in the NBA. Was Michael Jordan number one for a long time? We'll see what happens when he retires, but he is currently number two, MJ is. Nikola Jokic has the best player efficiency rating of any player ever for his career in the playoffs. He's just at a different level from a guy like Joel Embiid. You know, for me there, Mac, I was thinking about who should have actually won the award? And we talked about this a little while ago, and I thought that Jokic kind of tanked the award because of all the race stuff that, that broke out, you know, with Kendrick Perkins and stuff like that on ESPN a while back. And I, I took a look at the playoffs, and I'm sitting here, and I'm looking, and I'm like, Embiid didn't even play a real big man in the playoffs. He went up against Boston, and it's not like you get – a center from Boston constantly, you know, for, for 40 minutes in, in that series. And then you go up against Brooklyn, but Jokic had to go up against a real legit centers, legit big teams when you had to go up against Aiton and, and Gobert and, and Carl Anthony Towns. And I just looked at like the center position and the disparity between, and the difference between what both players saw. 
And not only has Jokic outplayed him, but I think Jokic has, has won throughout the year, you know, the tougher center-on-center center matchups. And Embiid, when he went up against, you know, some of those other crummy teams that didn't have the greatest centers in the world, that's when he had his biggest games. And against some of the, you know, tougher centers in the league, maybe he had, you know, some struggles. But I'm surprised Embiid struggled in the playoffs the way that he did uh, against the centers that were on the floor against him. So, um I don't know. That's kind of one thing that I was just thinking about, you know, when it came down to, you know, just talking about, you know, the MVP stuff that we're discussing here. Uh, on that note, I think it's important to to note that um, the MVP race was essentially decided the night that Jokic lost as like a 10-point favorite to the Rockets, had a ho-hum game, and Embiid beat the Celtics scoring 51 points. It went from like minus 200 Embiid was to like minus 600 the next game. It was essentially decided on that fateful April evening. Well, entering that game and entering the playoffs, I'm like, Embiid always has a big game against Boston. They don't necessarily do great as a team, but he has big games because the way they really don't have any size, they don't want to play Robert William in that role back to the basket all game, he can operate. Well, maybe they won better than expectations. They won three games, two, uh, one of them without him, but he didn't have that marquee game. He didn't have that 51-point game. Where was that game in the playoffs to, sh- to back up what you showed in the regular season if you are the most valuable player in the league. And I think the reason is because of co- is because is of his versatility is limited. When he doesn't get the ref's call and he has to try different things and they're showing different looks at him, Jokic has shown to roll with the punches, shoot from outside, uh, score inside, whatever it takes, be a passer. Uh, Embiid seems a lot more like this is what I do and it's going to work. I hope it works. I hope my shot's going. But that's a big deal in the NBA calmness and ability to change in a hectic environment uh, is something that Jokic has shown to have in a much stronger degree than Embiid. No, I love that you said that because I was thinking that, I don't know, maybe it was like middle way through the Boston series that they're actually letting these guys play basketball now. And one of the things that if you watch Joel Embiid play, he's on the ground a lot. The guy takes a lot of contact. He gets to the free throw a ton. And it felt like there were a lot of times that typically they probably would have called that foul in the regular season that they weren't calling it in the playoffs. So maybe he was discouraged. Maybe he was just banged up. I mean, that dude takes it. Give him credit. He goes out there. He, t- he gets his ass kicked nightly. And it's not like Jokic doesn't either. I mean, you said, I don't know if you've been watching Jokic come off the court uh, the last couple of games there, Mac, but he's all scratched up too. Like these guys probably should get a little bit more credit than, than they do. But um, obviously two of the best players in the world. So interesting conversation there, Mac. Let's go ahead and get to a quick coupon code here there, Mac. If you guys are looking to go ahead and save some money on NBA playoff picks, go over to pregame.com. You can enter Heat 50 or LA 50, and you guys can go ahead and save $50 off any playoff package there for the NBA at pregame.com. Mac, I know you're going ahead and you're firing in playoff picks daily pretty much. And, um, you know, if anybody's looking to go ahead and save some money there, make sure you guys enter code Heat 50 or LA 50. Mac, let's go ahead. Let's get to our agreed-upon player prop. It's going to be in this game. Uh, we don't have a pick on the side. We don't have a pick here on the total in this particular game. But we like a player prop. Now, let's go back to where we were just talking about betting players over, uh, especially star players. We typically do not like to do that. But, Mac, I'm looking right now, and I see Anthony Davis lined at 24.5 points. I scratch my head at that. He's obviously one of the best players on the floor. If he's not the best, he's one of the top three. And he's gone out there and he scored, what, the other day, 40 points or something like that in the game. Um, 24 and a half seems – it seems completely wrong. I think L.A. is going to get to the free throw line a lot in this game, and we've seen that throughout the entire year. You brought that to my attention a while back about the free throw disparity between the Lakers and all these other teams and, you know, is it fishy, is it not? But Anthony Davis went out. I think he had 11 free throws in the last game. I would not be shocked if he got half his points at the free throw line. If that's the case, Anthony Davis can go out there and shoot with his eyes closed and go ahead and get over this number of 24 and a half. I'm only asking him to go ahead and knock down six or seven shots. But I think AD's in in, in line for a monster game here at home. This is a role that the Lakers are used to, playing game three at home. And typically, I think they're going to look to their best player. It's not LeBron. It's Anthony Davis. I think he goes out there and has a really, really big game. I would make my line there, Mac, somewhere around 27, 28, 29 and a half, maybe as a pinnacle. 
but 24 and a half just seems way too freaking low. I'm going to play Anthony Davis to go ahead and go over his prop. That's kind of where we're both at. You're in line with that. So this will be our agreed to pay player prop. This will be our agreed upon player prop. Mac, you go ahead and give your, your end of the argument, but that's kind of where my argument's at. Not only do I think everything lines up, but I think this line's just completely wrong, and that always warrants a bet. It's been a zigzag rubber band type playoffs for Anthony Davis in odd games, one, three, five, scoring 29 points per game. In even games, like game two, for 15, only 18 points, he's only scoring 16 points per game. Now, is that random? Is that arbitrary? Well, I don't think so. I think it has everything to do with reacting to what you just saw with the team just put in front of you. For the very first time, LeBron James got some flack for holding the ball too much, taking too many shots in the fourth quarter. I think he responds to that. I think the team responds to that and isolates what's been working. Anthony Davis, I know he had a bad shooting game, but he was getting decent shots, shot quality back set up. And over the two games, he's scoring 28 points per game. That is their advantage is to take Anthony Davis and make him a half-court presence along with Austin Reeves and then get LeBron going in a half-court. And, and uh, that seems to be the formula that works. We've seen them after Anthony Davis scored 13 points. The game two against Miami scored – against Memphis, I'm sorry, scored 31 the next game. Scored 12 in game four, scored 31 the next game. We've seen him – he scored 11 uh, against the Warriors in game two, scored 25 the next game. He continues to come back and be – the best player on the Lakers because they know that's what they need if they're going to make it all the way to the finals. So um, I think the fact that they're taking him off Jokic, using him more of a roamer on defense, gives him a little bit more energy. And I think the free throw thing is a real thing. NBA likes long series. They're going to have the refs in there that like to call it tight, like to give the Lakers uh, the benefit of the doubt from time to time. He has uh, 22 free throws so far without necessarily – that benefit of being at home, of being in that must-win spot, I think he's going to get 11 free throws in this game. That already gets us halfway to the number. So over 24-and-a-half, I like a lot for Anthony Davis. All right, so there's our agreed-upon player prop. You guys got a couple of wagers for us uh, with the game that's going to go ahead and occur tonight, so make sure you guys go ahead and get down on those as soon as you possibly can. But that'll wrap it up for the NBA Dream Podcast for today. Uh, Mac and I hopefully will end up going ahead and getting back on a podcast for you guys next week. You guys know where to get us on Twitter at Mac and Rivers at SleepyJ underscore pregame. Make sure you guys like, subscribe to the podcast uh, if you can. With that said, I'd like to wish you guys all the best of luck. Enjoy the games.